You're listening to Lanyap, a weekly digest of news, personal finance, brotherly banter, and whatever else is on our minds. From Stokes Family Office. All right, we've got another episode of Lanyap Podcast. Uh, Doug and Greg Stokes, we've got a special guest this week, Perth Toll. Perth is the founder of Life and Liberty Indexes, an index provider and sponsor of the Freedom 100 Emerging Markets ETF, a first-of-its-kind strategy that uses personal and economic freedom metrics as primary factors in its investment process. Perth was a, a private wealth advisor at Fidelity in L.A. and Houston, and prior to that worked in Beijing and Hong Kong, where her observations led her to explore the relationship between freedom and markets frequent speaker, a lot more famous than us, so um, on Barron's, Bloomberg, CNBC, and, and, and other media outlets. The Freedom 100 Emerging Markets ETF, FRDM, was voted Best International Global Equity ETF and Index of the Year in 2019, and you were named 10 to Watch in 2020 by Wealth Management Magazine. Uh, a lot of accolades, Perth. Thanks for taking the time to speak with us today. I think just by way of background and how you, it led you to construct the uh, the Life and Liberty Indexes and the FRDM ETF, just do you want to spend a minute or two just talking about your background and what led you to launch this ETF? Sure. Thanks, Doug. And I told you not to read the whole bio, but <laughs> um, so, so yeah, so I um, was born in Beijing. I grew up there until I was around age nine, and then I came to the U.S., um, lived in the U.S. until after college when I went back and lived and worked in Hong Kong. Um, when I was in Hong Kong, I traveled throughout to the mainland, to Beijing, to Shanghai. And this was in 2003. And it was a very exciting time for the China business. Like China was really opening up. I remember um, interviewing with banks in Hong Kong and, you know, one of their big perks would be, you know, Mandarin classes at lunch, you know, and everybody wanted that. Um, so you could literally feel, you know, the excitement in the air when you're in China, you know, in Shanghai, Beijing, you know, on the mainland about and even in Hong Kong about the opening up of China um, at that time. And I think a lot of investors also in the U.S. wanted to invest in China. Um, but I also saw things that shocked me as someone who came from a or, you know, had my formative childhood years in um, a more free market and a more free society. So, for for example, you know, I. I'm a child of the one child policy. So, you know, the one child policy in China said, you know, dictated that every family can only have one child. Um, of course, there's also other laws like you can't have children if you're not married and, and things like that. But um, if you're married, you can have one child. And this was started in 1979 or it was 1978, but started being enforced in 1979 and then, you know, went all the way until for 30 years. So this is my generation. And, um, as a result of this policy, there's 30 million missing women in China. So missing women being, they don't exist. They're gone because of selective births and things like that, because you know, Chinese society is still very, um, you know, sons are the ones that take care of you when you're older and things like that. So there is still a some preference. And so, so due to this policy, 30 million missing women, according to official Chinese think tank estimates, are just gone. And um, personally, it, this policy affected me as well. And I had a friend when I was in Hong Kong. Um, she was in Shanghai. Her name was Maggie. Or we called her Maggie, but she had no birth certificate, no school records, um, no hospital records, no social security. She does not exist on paper because she was born 
the second child, her parents registered her brother for school. So in the countryside, sometimes you can get away with having more than one child, but you can only register one under your family name for school. So she was probably going to school under a different family name. Um, so she doesn't truly exist on paper. And so, you know, and I, and she was the same as me in every other way. We were the exact same age. We hung out like she was all like my, all my American friends, you know, exactly the same, except for she doesn't exist on paper. So that had a profound, found impact on me. And I was like, wow, that could have been me. Um, so that policy is one of the things that made me realize, okay, so, you know, governance and policies, they matter for the future of a society and for the markets. I mean, you can see now China has the worst demographics in the world and it's a major risk, you know, investment risk going forward, as well as some other risks that I'm sure we'll talk about. Yeah. So, uh, and I think this year, maybe more than any, uh, it's apparent that allocations to certain countries outside of what Americans would consider uh, free societies. And I think we get a little, we get spoiled here just, um, you know, being able to do really whatever we want uh, within the confines of the law, and then you and then you have something like Russia, and and from an investment perspective, you let's say you have an emerging markets allocation, and that emerging markets fund that you own has Russian equities in it. Well, what happened earlier this year is that capital markets in Russia were completely shut off, and all of those equities within that bucket allocated to Russia were marked at zero. Essentially, you actually couldn't even trade them. And so, um, which is a, an amazing thing to see. And so when, when we look at your ETF in particular, can you talk about just the underlying construction of the ETF and, and risks that, that investors uh, are posed uh, just by allocating to autocracies and the biggest one being maybe China and the risk that China, if there was an invasion to Taiwan, how that would impact investors if, if there's some sort of outcome similar to Russia? Yeah, so I think when the Russian invasion happened is when uh, most investors who are emerging markets investors woke up to autocracy risk, which is a term that um, we have been trying to get into the, the conversation for quite a while. And now it is definitely part of the conversation, uh, thanks to, to Russia. Um, so, you know, as you mentioned, Russian stocks got marked to zero after in the aftermath of you know, sanctions and the worldwide coordinated efforts to contain Russia using capital markets. Um, after the invasion of Ukraine. So um, at that time, people started seeing some of these risks. And some of the autocracy risks that um, we think are present in these types of countries are, one is transparency risk. We don't know if the data coming out of these countries are reliable um, or accurate. And so investors are left guessing as to, you know, whether the data really impact, you know, is a good measure of the impact of their investments. And that's very... Uh, much the case in China. Um, you know, even right now with the opening up and just a lot of COVID cases and, and deaths happening. Uh, I mean, I, I was watching Bloomberg, you know, on the plane and, and they were literally saying, or not on the plane, but, you know, in my travels this weekend, and, and they were literally saying, we don't know. There's no data. Like, we don't, we don't have any indication of how many deaths or, or whatever there is. Um, and so I think that, that transparency and data risk accounting um, uh, accounting um, standards are not up to international standards and so on and so forth. And we don't know ownership structures are opaque. So these are all transparency risks. Um, there's also the risk of uh, misplaced priorities. So companies that operate or that are domiciled in 
autocracies have to put the state's interests before the interests of all other stakeholders, including their customers, including their shareholders. So if Tencent, who has a, a, an app called WeChat, if the government wants to use the data on the WeChat app to crack down on whether it be Uyghurs or dissidents, they're going to have to allow the government to do that. So is that good for their business? No, but state interests always have to come first. So if you're a company, you know, let's say you're operating in Chile or Taiwan, but you do business in China, you can stop doing business in China, you can stop doing production in China, but if you're domiciled in China, under the laws of the Chinese government, you can't just stop. So you have to put the state's interest first. And there's a cost to doing business that way. So investors are subsidizing that cost. And then lastly, I think um, there's also uh, the risk um, of basically very capricious government actions, uh, wiping out shareholder value. So last year, China, again, poster child, um, we saw the education companies, right, go down to basically worthless, they you know, lost all their value due to overnight stroke of a pen, government said, you're nonprofits now. You're now not allowed to make profit, you're not allowed to raise capital, you know, you're basically nonprofits, just stroke of a pen. And why did they do that? Because the cost of childbearing was too high and people weren't having more children. So I mentioned the one child policy because of the demographic crisis that is coming out of that policy. Now people are allowed to have three children. So it went from one to two to three, but nobody is having more children because the entire culture of my generation changed due to this policy. So they're trying to encourage people to have more children by lowering the cost of child rearing by making education companies nonprofits. So this is, you know, reproductive rights are a personal freedom, shareholder rights are an economic freedom, and our you know, data providers at Cato and Fraser like to say that all freedoms work together like parts of an automobile. You can't have a transmission without a steering wheel. The car still won't run. And so they're trying to basically fix the transmission by ripping out the steering wheel. So that doesn't work either. So those are the main types of autocracy risks that we look at, so transparency risk, and that goes with you know, data or ownership structures or accounting. There's the um, capricious government actions wiping out shareholder risk, and then there's the misplaced priorities risks. So all of those are typically present when you have an autocracy like China, Russia, Saudi Arabia, and so forth. Um, and this is what we try to avoid in investing the way that we do. That the, the whole concept behind your ETF um, is specifically related to emerging markets is so interesting, Spe specifically because the whole idea for um, investment idea behind emerging markets is that eventually those markets will emerge, meaning that your the, the your returns should be outsized because your um, the the demographic changes in those particular places, or the emerging middle class or what have you would then uh, result in higher returns. But those specific items that you mentioned related to auto autocracy risk mm -hmm. uh, basically hold these company or these. Uh, countries back from emerging. So if you can have a systematized way to exclude those particular bad actors or uh, autocracies from an, an, an overall uh, index, I think that's a, a really interesting approach. Can you explain like the makeup? So you mentioned that, that China, China, Saudi Arabia, Russia um, are excluded from uh, uh, FRDM. What are your what are the current makeups from a from a uh, geographic standpoint uh, for the the ETF presently, 
And how do you monitor and make the decisions accordingly? You mentioned Cato a minute ago um, and the data that you obtained from them. But can you go into those uh, methodologies in more detail and the current makeup of the fund? Yeah, absolutely. So, so basically, you know, you're, what you're mentioning is exactly right. People invest in emerging markets because of the tremendous growth potential, because these are markets that are coming from a very low base. And the reason why we use freedom weighting, so, so we're not just excluding autocracies, but we're giving the freer countries a higher weight, is because we believe that the freer markets will experience more sustainable growth, they'll recover faster from drawdowns, and they'll use their capital and labor more efficiently. So not only do we want to exclude the, the autocracies and you know stay away from that autocracy risk, but we want to give a higher weight to freer markets, which we think are launch paths for the growth stories of the next decade. So, um, so the, the data for, for freedom metrics comes from the Cato Institute and the Fraser Institute. They have a data set called the Human Freedom Index and Data Set, and they're defining human freedom as both personal and economic freedom. So there's 82 different variables that they use in this data set, including, you know, and I bucket it into three categories. So I have civil freedoms, political freedoms, and economic freedoms. So civil freedoms are things like terrorism, torture, trafficking, internal organized conflict, wars, you know, causing wars in other countries. Um, women's rights are part of civil freedoms as well. There's five proxies for that, including missing women in China. Um, so uh, political freedoms are things like freedom of speech, media expression, um, assembly, civil procedure, criminal procedure, and things like that. Economic freedoms are things we're all more familiar with, taxation, business regulations, private property rights and rule of law, um, sound monetary policies, and um, freedom to trade. So the more trade, the better. So all of these things added together, all 80 variables are equal weighted in their methodology. Um, and we use the composite country score. They score 165 countries. Um, to give an example of you know, common emerging markets, China scores 150 out of 165. So one is best, 165 is like Venezuela. So you have China at 150, um, Taiwan is like, Taiwan and Chile are up in the 20s. Um, so you have some very free markets and some very unfree markets and emerging markets. So that's why we started in the emerging market space with this um, index is because the emerging markets present such a great opportunity for freedom, freedom premium capture. Um, so that's, that's basically where we, where we get that, um, that uh, country score. What's the what's the uh, number one free country per the methodology? It, I have to look that up. That is not an emerging market, so I only look at the emerging market. What's the emerging market? What's the freest emerging market? Taiwan. Taiwan. Yeah. So out of 165, um, and there's only 17 or 27 emerging markets in the emerging markets universe that we use. So Taiwan is the freest of those. We were talking about this before we hit record and specifically related to to China, but what, just explain the risk associated with just a general emerging markets allocation, specifically related to Chinese weighting in that index position. Yeah, so we have zero allocation to China currently, um, and that's direct allocation. You're still going to have that indirect allocation through um, trade, right? Because we don't penalize free trade. So if you have you know a Taiwanese company that does production in China, we don't exclude the company for that. That's a Taiwanese company that has the option to do production in China or not. 
Um, but we don't have that direct exposure. So it's very difficult to completely eliminate all China exposure, indirect exposure as well, because even if you have Apple or Starbucks, you've got indirect China exposure, right? So, um, and especially in emerging markets, every emerging market's got indirect China exposure. So we just don't think you need to double up on that with direct exposure as well. Um, so we have zero China exposure. In comparison, at the time that we launched um, the index, China exposure in market cap weighted indexes, for example, from MSCI or FTSE, was around 35%. At their height um, in August of 2020, China exposure in market cap weighted emerging markets indexes was um, 41%. And now it's gone down to about 26%. So that's, that's the difference. Our index has 0% China allocation. Most indexes currently, um, in emerging markets indexes currently have about 26%. Okay, so, um, and n not that there's any anticipation that this would happen, but if you you are basically you see the risk associated with autocracy more so in 2022 than we have uh, in a very long time, really since um, emerging markets investing has has become a thing, um, and so you see that you see what happened in Russia, and you say, okay, where could that happen elsewhere? Well, Russia made up what? How, do you know the percent that Russia well, made up of the between three to four percent? Yeah. Okay. So three to four percent of your portfolio not, position. Not Zero in mine, but three to four percent of market cap weighted emerging markets indexes. Okay. So if so, if an investor has a global portfolio and let's say ten percent of that is emerging markets, three to four percent of ten percent is really the exposure that a general investor that's a that's a global investor had to Russia in. In this particular case, if something like that were to happen in China, then we're talking about a pretty we're talking about ten times almost ten times that, right? So exactly. Um, yeah, so exactly. at the, at this point in time, the it, the amount of scrutiny that a portfolio allocated to emerging markets should have should be at at its highest. And then if you're looking at these index providers uh, putting you know twenty between twenty and forty percent of an allocation to a single country that's ranking near the bottom from a freedom perspective, uh, seems like a high risk to me. Yep. I mean, we would agree with that, that perspective. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Okay. So I, I want to take a, just a look back here. We're, we're focusing a lot on the last couple of years and, and we're in a COVID era in which there's been a huge bifurcation between, um, political policy. So whether that's, that's human, uh, individual freedom or economic freedom, We've really seen bifurcation amongst countries, let's say like Sweden on one end, which really didn't do a whole lot from from the perspective of COVID lockdowns or uh, or things of that nature to China, which is just emerging from going on a three year lockdown. And so we, we have that data set and it's pretty apparent now to say, look, we've got to look at um, uh, these sorts of metrics when investing outside of the United States or outside of the developing wor developed world. But going beyond the last three years, do you have data from the, the Cato-Fraser index to say, okay, freedom in emerging markets outside of 2020 to 2022, this, this use case is, it, let's say things were going to, to go back to normal. We have back-tested data to say this would work in an environment that's just a normal environment and not an environment like a COVID environment. Yeah, actually, our index does go back to 2017. So if you have a Bloomberg terminal, you can look up the FRDM index back to 2017 and overlay it with 
any broad emerging market like MSCI emerging markets index. Um, and it does outperform in the, the back tested environment as well. But of course, that's a back test. So, um, and we, you know, it, the further back you go, the less accurate it gets. So we only did a five year back test at the time of um, launch of the index, not the ETF. The ETF launched in 19. So 2017, um, the index launched and we went back five years. So the back test goes back to 2012. The live history goes back to 2017. So over that entire data time period, including the back test, it, the freer emerging markets, the free, the freedom weighted um, index does show outperformance over uh, market cap weighted benchmarks. Okay. Um, in, in terms of launching, can you talk us through just that launch process? So you, you mentioned your product of the one child policy. Uh, you had a friend uh, when you were living in Hong Kong, just like you, other than just completely unregistered. At what point in time did you say there's a there's an opportunity here for people that recognize the risks of autocracies to invest in a fund that may not exist now, but invest in a fund that is recognizing this risk? And so walk us through that sort of light bulb that went off for you. Yeah. So after I came back from Hong Kong, I worked at Fidelity as a financial advisor in the L.A. and Houston markets, mostly in L.A. And I had a lot of clients that came from outside the U.S., a lot of them in the Houston area from the Middle East and, you know, oil and gas and in L.A. from all over. And, um, and I had a Russian client here in in um, Houston that said to me, I don't want to invest in Russia because it's like funding terrorism. This was in 2014, <laughs> still at Fidelity. And, you know, look how prescient that is now. But um, I felt the same way about China. And when I first worked at Fidelity, it was 2004, and when I first came back from Hong Kong. And having seen all that I saw in China, I didn't want to invest there. Um, at the time, Fidelity had an emerging markets fund that had only Hong Kong, like A shares, um, uh, sorry, H shares, um, and no A shares. So I, I felt more comfortable in the Fidelity emerging markets fund than others, but I still didn't want to put any money in China. So I felt the same way as my client did about investing in his home country um, because of the autocracy risk. And so eventually, you know, um, I learned more about ETFs and how beneficial they were for investors. And I just, I know of no other um, instrument in the financial services space that is as beneficial for investors as ETFs. So um, eventually, I had the idea of launching the ETF with um, this index as the underlying, the basis of the ETF. So we created the index with the um, with the uh, intention of it being an ETF. So we made it very as tradable as possible, because with an ETF, liquidity is extremely important. Um, so uh, eventually, I left Fidelity to stay at home with my young child, and so you know, being a parent was the the primary. Um, objective. And in the beginning years when she was young, I did very little and went very slow. And so you'll notice that I had left Fidelity for seven years before we actually launched, or, you know, at this point I've left, I've been gone for, um, you know, longer than that. So by the time we actually launched the ETF, a lot had transpired. Um, and probably the first years I did close to nothing. And then um, in 2017, we launched this iteration of the index and it started calculating live. Um, 2018, we, you know, I started or, you know, trying to shop the index to all of the issuers. I talked to iShares, I talked to, you know, State Street, I talked to basically everybody you could think of 
that that I could get in contact with, and nobody wanted to you know track this index as an ETF. So eventually, I figured out I'm gonna have to do it on my own, and I just felt like the product had to exist, and so I, I you know figured I would rather take the risk and fail than not try because nothing like this existed and no one had ever used you know freedom metrics in an investment product and you know emerging markets was so rife with autocracies and i just felt like this had to be an option for people um so the second iteration of the index which i just mentioned started calculating in 2017 the first iteration had other factors in it like value and, and yield um, i stripped it of all of that in 2017 we launched the you know, just freedom is the only factor in this index. Um, we do exclude state-owned enterprises on the security level, but that's economic freedom coming through. So it's still freedom is the only factor. And um, 2018, towards the end, um, you know, Alpha Architect and I decided to work together on this product. I actually asked Wes about it in the spring of 2007, 2018, and he was like, no, dude, you know, you should do it on your own. And I was like, how am I going to do it on my own? You're sitting here with seven PhDs. I'm like at home with my child, you know? So um, and he, over the course of the year, he actually mentored me and taught me how to do it on my own. So I had everything set up. We were about to set up our you know, own RIA, get exemptive relief. It's all drawn up. And one day he's on the phone with me. He's like, hey, great idea. You would save even more money if you did this with us on our platform. I'm like, didn't we already have this conversation? <laughs> Right. It just had to be his idea. He may tell you a different version, but that's what actually happened. Um, so, so, you know, we decided to work together and instead of me, you know, dealing with all of the, you know, compliance, trading, everything that has to do with the, with the operations, Alpha Architect handles all the fund operations and compliance and all of that. Um, and I can focus on telling the story. So, and, you know, sharing about the freedom weighting methodology. So that was a great partnership and it's, you know, worked out great for us. I, you know, highly enjoy working with those guys. Um, and I think we do have, you know, perfectly um, complementary um, comparative advantages. So, um, so that's a great team. And that's how we ended up launching the FRDM ETF based on the index in 2019. Yeah. And then for those who don't know, Wes, who was on our podcast before, um, is an ex-Marine and a Chicago PhD. So somebody that's like pro-freedom um, is probably is probably the right person to, to partner with on that. One of the things that pops up um, when I'm looking at this ETF versus alternatives, because it's really, I mean, you have the big uh, gorillas in the room like State Street or iShares or Vanguard that have emerging market ETFs. And it's really easy to just go out and say, okay, those are I can go buy an ETF from iShares for basically nothing. Like they're, you know, three basis points, five basis points or whatever. And it's a, it's a brand name versus, um, you know, Alpha Architect, which is more, or, or Freedom 100, which is more white label. And so, um, you know, one of the questions that pops up is, I'll, why don't I just go out and go to iShares and buy iShares Emerging Markets X China? If I just have a view of China, I just don't want to have, assets allocated there, what is the drawback to doing something like that? Yeah, so when you just kill China out of a um, market cap weighted index, first of all, I don't think that makes sense because they're the biggest market cap country and you're taking it out of a market cap weighted index. So um, so that's, you know, 
not what we're trying to do. We're not trying to just permanently exclude one country um, arbitrarily. We are freedom waiting. So we are exclusions come as a natural result of freedom waiting. And those are dynamic. So Right. It's not personal belief. Uh, right. Yeah. Well, it also can change over time. So right. if China becomes more free, so we saw the protests happening recently and the government actually responded to the protests, which is a new thing we've never seen before. If that happens more often, let's say China becomes more free, that is going to be a great market to invest in. And we would want to be a part of that. And they, you know, if their freedom score changes to the degree that they become included in the index, then that's a great day. So it's a dynamic situation. The other difference is that if you just exclude China out of an emerging markets cap weighted index, you are now increasing the weight to other autocracies. So if Russia was still in there, its weight would be increased. Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Turkey, Qatar, UAE. I mean, I could go on, right? There's a lot of autocracies in the emerging markets universe. And all of those are going to be increased as a result of China's weight being reallocated to the other countries. Right. So you're not so, really solving that. You're not solving the problem other than uh, in the event China was to do something drastic that would really implode their capital markets. Yeah. I mean, it, it is a Band-Aid. It's a good Band-Aid, right? But it's right. just a Band-Aid. It's not it's like a Band-Aid on a cancer. You know, so it's not solving. It's not addressing the root issue, but it does kind of. You know, if if you think China is the only problem in emerging markets, then yeah, that that works. But um, but we actually think freer markets will grow faster, be more resilient, and use capital more efficiently. So we think by allocating to higher allocations to the freer emerging markets, we're going to capture the growth stories of the future. China is more of a growth story of the past, um, but that doesn't mean that you know all these other autocracies are fine, right? We don't want to be in those either. We want to be in the freest markets with our highest allocations in the freer markets. So what's next for life and liberty indexes? I think emerging markets is a, is a really great place to start. It's pretty drastic, drastic differences between free and unfree societies. Is there a next phase to this where you can implement this across developed markets? Um, so developed markets actually is less interesting to me, but it's possible people do ask for that. Um, I think there's a lot of other asset classes that um, would amplify the freedom premium more. So we are looking at some of those and uh, I'm not free to share those yet, but um, we do have some, some new products in the pipeline <laughs> that we're now actually um, you know, looking to implement uh, over the next couple of years. So um, and also, we want to bring the the product to new markets. So there's there's other markets that contact us that say, "Hey, can you make this available in such and such place?" And so um, we want to work on that as well. What's your what's your what's your view on? Um, and we're we're going to come up in time, but I, I'm just interested in this this angle here because it's been on in the news a lot lately. The whole ESG angle, and you see um, like state governments like Florida or. Uh, Texas pulling back from allocations to BlackRock, specifically as it relates to their lower weighting to uh, s specifically fossil fuels and and other areas that may may have some political bent to it. Um, ESG, from my perspective, this there's no nothing more ESG to me than uh, political and economic freedom. Uh, and so, how do you how do you integrate this 
this strategy into more of an ESG framework at investment committee meetings or across uh, sort of the institutional side of the business? Yeah, no, I think the ESG debate is becoming, you know, by trying to make it less politicized is becoming more politicized. So, um, so we've always tried to distance ourselves from ESG um, because the way that our industry currently does ESG, we think is pretty ineffective in emerging markets because it completely ignores autocracy risk. Um, it's security level only. And so if the securities have high ESG ratings in an autocratic country, remember transparency risk. We don't know if the data is even accurate. Uh, to measure the impact of any ESG or other factors. Right, like so, FTX had uh, great ESG ratings. Yeah. FTX, the company that just FTX went bankrupt. Was a, had a higher ESG rating than, than Exxon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, um, so exactly. So by ignoring, you know, a lot of very relevant factors like freedom, you know, human rights, you know, basic, you know, personal economic freedoms, media freedoms, without, without freedom of the press, you don't have any independent verification on your data that you're using. So, um, it seems I like you would start there before you even got anywhere else. But That's exactly right. So we would say that the freedom metrics are a basis for all other ESG. So if you don't have the freedom metrics in place, then all other ESG is meaningless. This is in the emerging market space. Now, in, in, in you know, developed markets, maybe it's more useful because the data is more transparent. But as, you know, we, we're in the emerging market space. In that space, I can, you know, with high confidence say ESG is pretty meaningless unless you have the freedom metrics as a basis. I mean, you look at ESG, like iShares Emerging Markets ESG Fund. That's the ESGE. That's the, the biggest ESG Emerging Markets Fund in the U.S. And it, it has, it, it literally by definition has to be greenwashing because it says we cannot deviate more than 1% from the non-ESG parent index, which is the MSCI Emerging Markets Index, as far as our weightings. So they, you know, when, when that index had 40% in China, this index had 40% in China. And so, you know, no alcohol, tobacco, or gambling, but genocide is perfectly fine. So you know, it's just, it's just, it doesn't make sense. So, so, you know, that's something that I think a reason why we try to distance ourselves from, you know, ESG, especially here in the U.S., you know, in, the way that we do it. Um, and I think, you know, Europe has a little more, uh, they're a little more advanced as far as US, ESG goes. But even there, it's still kind of a kind of a joke in the emerging market space. So we're, we're, we're trying to work on that um, with ESG folks that contact us. And a lot of people use us in their ESG emerging markets allocations. Um, so, so we're, we're happy to, um, you know, be considered ESG, but we're not going to sell ourselves that way. Right. Well, I th listen, Perth, thanks, thanks so much for taking the time today. I think as we move to this somewhat of a new world order in which not everybody operates by the rules of the United States and you've got some bad actors out there that are coming out to light and, and maybe more emboldened having this sort of framework for investing outside of, um, you know, rule of law and, uh, just the normal U S framework that we're all used to is going to become more and more important. And I think that that's verified by the growth of your ETF this year. I think you talked to me about it a few weeks ago, that it's, uh, the amount of assets that you've gotten has, has gotten significant in the last 
12 months. So I want to say thank you for taking the time and, and hope to work with you in the future. And uh, we'd love to have you back in a couple of years, especially if there's craziness going on in the emerging markets world. Hopefully nothing happens. But Yeah, it would be my pleasure. And thank you for having me. Thanks, Perth. Thanks for listening to this episode of Lanyap. This podcast is brought to you by Stokes Family Office. If you liked this episode, consider sharing it with a friend. You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about Stokes Family Office and Lanyap, visit us at stokesfamilyoffice.com. The information in this podcast is educational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision.